You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. It really is good to be here with you today. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Um, Today, we are continuing in our series that we've titled Dealing With Your Past. Um, And in, in this series, we're just talking about how a key practice in our discipleship to Jesus is going back to go forward. Um, it's not dwelling on the past. The past is not a place that we would say you ever want to live, but it is a place that you'll need to visit and revisit if you're going to move forward into the life that Jesus has for you. And so um, that's the series that we're in. And we're going to, with that, look at Genesis chapter 37 today. So if you'll go there with me, I'm just going to read the first four verses to set the context. And then we're actually going to do lots of uh, jumping around and surveying. So Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1, it says this. <clears throat> Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, uh, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, uh, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made for him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his, other, uh, all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together one more time. Uh, father, we do ask that right now you would meet us. Um, I just pray, God, that with whatever stuff we bring into this room with us, hurt and baggage and things like that, God, that you would um, in no way allow the flesh to shame us or allow uh, us to shame ourselves in our minds, but to just be honest before you with what we've lived uh, and cry out for your healing mercy and grace and your redemption. I pray for the power to break patterns, the power of your gospel to heal wounds and reinterpret our whole stories and our whole lives that we may live for your glory. Um, And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Or I was reminded uh, this week of a conversation I had in high school with one of my coaches and mentors. Uh, many of you have heard me tell stories about my relationship with my high school football coach, Pip Runyon, uh, whose son Andy um, is a member of our church and one of my good friends from high school. And I was reminded this week about how uh, when Coach Runyon first moved to Green County Tech from Little Rock and he became my coach my junior season, I was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that he wanted to murder me. Uh, absolutely convinced. And I know many of you were like, well, Adam, like, think of a lot of high, a lot of teachers in high school wanted to kill you. And, uh, and that's also true. Um, but I was convinced that he wanted to kill me, that he hated me. And I remember <laughs> coming home from, uh, practice and saying things to my dad, like, man, he hates me. Like, the, the coach hates me. Uh, and my dad would, you know, such a good listener would say, well, tell me why. Why do you think he hates you? And I would say, well, because he pushes me harder than any, he pushes anybody else. And he's always on my case. He's always telling me where I need to grow and what I can do better. And he doesn't talk to the other players that way. And I just feel like nothing that I ever do is good enough. And I don't know. I just think he hates me. And so, you know, my dad always had this kind of gift for patient listening. And so he would just listen. And my dad said at one point, you know, son, I can totally understand how you would interpret it that way. 
And he said, but have you ever considered the fact that you may be reading the facts wrong? Um, Maybe he pushes you so hard, not because he hates you. Maybe he pushes you because he cares about you. Maybe he pushes you because he sees something in you and he's trying to draw out the best in you. And I remember kind of being angry at my dad of like, well, whatever, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you don't know anything. That's a very interesting interpretation, dad. And so one day in a conversation with Coach Runyon, I actually had the courage, mustered up the courage to say to him, like, why do you hate me? <laughs> you know, like, why do you want to kill me? And, uh, and he, he actually told me that my dad was right. What Coach Runyon proceeded to tell me was, Adam, I push you because I, I love you. I care about you. And I see something in you. And I also see immaturity and lethargy and all kinds of other stuff that, that where you're not going to reach your full potential if I don't stay on your tail and I don't push you. And so I push you because I care about you and I want to bring out the best in you. And by the way, about seven years ago, I wrote that man a handwritten letter and shipped it to him from Kansas City and said, thanks, because I obviously needed that. And the reason why I tell you that story is because it highlights a fundamental truth about us. And the truth is this. When you're a kid growing up in a broken world, a world that hurts, a fallen world full of imperfection. When you're a kid growing up in this world, you have no choice but to take the events that come at you, the facts that come at you, and the feelings you have about those facts and build a narrative and tell yourself a story to try to make sense of it all. Um, Bobette Buster's like the guru in this. In fact, she's been called the story guru. Um, she is the, known in the inter, in, entertainment industry as that. She's the creative executive for companies like Pixar, 20th Century Fox, and Disney Animation. She's the one they bring in to say, like, help us figure out how to tell a story. And here's what Bobette Buster says about human beings. She says, human beings are narrative animals. The only creature on earth that tells stories to understand what kind of creature it is. We have an inerrant need to make sense of our experiences, to give them coherence. Interpreting the events of our lives to make sense of them is arguably a central human need. Therefore, we can't help but generate stories that give meaning to the events of our lives and the emotions we carry. So she says a central need, right? A central need for every human being is to take your experiences in and then register your emotions. Okay, what am I feeling about that? And then make an interpretation. And tell yourself a story to make sense of, okay, what just happened? And why do I feel the way that I feel? And, and, and what Buster's getting at is something called narrative scripts. If you want a definition, I'll give you a lengthy definition of narrative scripts. Narrative scripts are beliefs or messages that at a very young age were imprinted in us based on events that happened to us and the emotional feedback we receive from our earliest relationships with parents, siblings, family members, teachers, other kids at school, and the culture in which we grew up. These messages are usually subconscious, but check this out, have a tremendous power over your life because our interpretation becomes our identity and the story we live into for better or for worse. And I know what some of you are thinking, because some of you are just like me. Before you dismiss this as pop psychology, I'm going to show you in just a second that it's scripture, and it's just scientifically true. There are numerous studies in the world of neurobiology and interpersonal neurobiology about how God created your brain to be a meaning-making organ. Like, by nature, humans are meaning-makers, meaning we cannot not interpret what we see and what we feel and tell ourselves a story. 
And the reason why all this matters is because depending on your family of origin and your childhood experience, some of your scripts will be good and true and healthy. But because we grew up in a fallen world and on some level every family's dysfunctional, some of your stories will be untrue, unhealthy, false, and incredibly toxic. And those are the ones that if you don't acknowledge and deal with them, they're going to eat your lunch. And they're going to damage your soul because those are the ones that have a significant impact on your relationships with God and others. Some of you in this room grew up in a family with really high standards uh, and a pressure to be the best and a pressure to be perfect. And the narrative script you unconsciously tell yourself is it's not okay to make mistakes. I have to perform and be good enough in order to be loved and accepted. Maybe you grew up in a home where mom or dad was emotionally unavailable or totally absent. And the story you've told yourself to make sense of that is something's wrong with me. Maybe I'm not worth sticking around for. Maybe I'm not worth loving. Or maybe for you the script is it's not safe to trust others and and to trust other people to care for me. And it's not safe to let other people get close because that's how you get hurt. So I'll just push everybody away and I'll take care of myself. Or for you, maybe the script you live in too is I have to take care of everybody. Because if I don't, who will? And I learned very on that I'm the caretaker. That's the mask that was handed to me. That's the mask I willingly put on. And so if I don't care for everybody, then who's going to do that? The reality is we've all developed false scripts. And we bring, listen, we bring those false scripts, those same neural networks, not just into our relationships with other people, but into our relationship with Jesus. If, if, if I think it's not safe to get close to other people, if I think I have to perform to be loved, I'm not just bringing that re- into my relationship with my wife or with you. I'm bringing that into my relationship with God. It's the same interpretation I bring to the table because how you relate is how you relate. And so the problem this causes for us is that your, your false scripts will keep you living out of a false identity and they'll keep you from experiencing the present and the future life God has for you in Jesus if you don't change your script. So a key task in our discipleship to Jesus is you have to go back to go forward. You have to go back and identify what are these false narratives I'm living into that I'm giving myself to. Where did these come from? How did this develop? So that you can replace those with the truth of who God is and what he says about you in Christ. And the question is, how do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's that's what I want to talk about. So to answer that, I want to look at the story of Joseph. In Genesis 37, and I just want to say this, there's something really, really powerful God wants to say to us through Joseph's life because Joseph's talked about in Genesis more than any other character in the book, including Abraham, and and the author devotes a whole quarter of Genesis just to telling Joseph's story and his journey of growing up into this emotionally, spiritually mature adult and this amazing, compassionate world leader. But when you first encounter Joseph in Genesis 37, he's got a long way to go to becoming that person. So let's pick the story back up in Genesis 37 two. If you close your Bibles, here's what it says. Uh, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring. Now he's 17, okay? Pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy um, with his father's wives. And, and so Joseph brought this bad report of them to their father. And now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he makes for him this robe of many colors. And as a result, the brothers hate him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it strangely comforting when I read about how dysfunctional other families are in the Bible. Um, 
we, we kind of tend to make these people into heroes that we want to try to emulate. The reality is they're just as jacked up as I am. And in this passage, you see just on the surface, Jacob has two wives. He also has two concubines. Together they have 12 sons who all live under one roof. This will make for a killer reality TV show. <laughs> and so on the surface, you already see how dysfunctional things are. But when you begin to press beneath the surface into their relationship dynamics, then you really begin to see how broken things are. And the narrator gives us the first clue that something is deeply broken back in verse 3. Because he says in verse 3, Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Jacob favors Joseph over his brothers. And to the original reader, as soon as you read this, you know this is a huge red flag. Because you've seen this pattern throughout the book of Genesis. There's a pattern of favoritism that runs in this family. Abraham favors Ishmael over Isaac. Isaac favors Esau over Jacob. And now Jacob favors Joseph over his brothers. And I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you like wake up and realize to your horror that even though you swore it never happened, you're just like your mom or just like your dad. Um, But Jacob lacks the self-awareness to see that he's just like his dad. Jacob lacks the self-awareness to see that he's doing the same things to his sons that his dad did to him when he was growing up. So just to sum up the backstory, Jacob grew up overlooked by his father, Isaac. He grew up desperately lacking the love and affirmation of his father because Isaac clearly preferred his brother Esau to him. In fact, Jacob so longed for what Esau had with his dad that at one point he tricks his dad and dresses up like Esau and goes in just so for for a second he can feel what Esau felt, his father's touch. And so for one second he can hear what Esau heard, his father's blessing pronounced over him. Jacob was driven, his life was driven by this inner lack of approval and affirmation. And it's one of the things that drove him to fix his heart on Rachel. And so he fixes his heart on Rachel when he's an adult, and he says something in his heart like, man, if I could just marry her, then this void in my heart would be fulfilled. And so he does marry her. And Rachel gives birth, birth to two sons who were the youngest of all of Joseph's uh, or Jacob's children. She had Joseph, and then she had Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. Now watch this. This is what the narrator wants you to see. Pay careful attention to this. What he wants you to see in verse 3 is that after Rachel's death, Joseph, their firstborn son together, became the new emotional center of Jacob's life. Jacob became overattached and enmeshed with Joseph. He put, he, put the, he put the weight of his whole identity and all his longings for approval and affirmation onto Joseph. Newsflash, that will crush your children. Crush them. They can't handle it. And he, he gave special attention and special treatment to Joseph in a way that he didn't give to any of his other children. And one example of this is this famous robe of many colors, right? We all learned about it in Sunday school. Um, you see that in verse 3, he gives Jacob this special robe. And the Hebrew here is fascinating because uh, the Hebrew word here for this robe is actually kind of hard to translate. It communicates royalty and wealth. The point is this, this would have been an extremely expensive gift. And notice, please notice, the text says for you, he didn't give him this robe, he made it for him. So 
This, this would have cost Jacob a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of time. And guess what? That's a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of attention. He did not give to his other children. And the story, as the story continues, you, you see that Jacob's favoritism actually poisons the whole family system, which is what you've seen throughout this family's lineage. And it, it now continues to happen with Jacob's sons. Poisons them. In verse 4... We see how this is affecting the other children. So look at, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than them, they hated him. They hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. What are Joseph's brothers feeling? Hurt, right? It's, I mean, it's really clear. They're feeling hurt. Um, as you continue reading, three times it says their hatred for Joseph is growing. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. And then look at verse 11. Verse 11 says they were, quote, jealous of him, end quote. Now, when you're jealous of somebody, you want what they have, right? What's he jealous of? What, what are the brothers jealous of? What, what is it that Joseph has that they want? It's their father's love and affirmation. It's, I'm not making it up. It's in the, it's in the Bible. Like this, this is here for us to deal with. This is what they want. They want the same thing Jacob wanted from his father that he didn't receive. And so you you put yourself in the story and you can just feel it, right? Joseph's brothers feel overlooked. They feel hurt. And now all of their hurt and all of their anger gets pointed at Joseph because he's daddy's favorite. He's the little chip off the old block, right? The golden child who can do no wrong. And, and you can just imagine the stories they probably told themselves to make sense of this. Well, I guess I don't matter. You know? I mean, am I not good enough? Am I unlovable? Is something wrong with me? I guess I can't trust anybody to be there for me. The people who are supposed to protect me and care about me don't. How am I supposed to make sense of that? And what's fascinating, though, is that the narrator wants us to notice that Joseph's brothers are not the only ones in the family who are hurt by this way of being by Jacob. And all commentators agree that Joseph's behavior and his way of relating not only damages the brothers, but it does significant damage to Joseph, his favorite son. And you you, you start to see the signs of this back in verse 2. So go back to verse 2 and look at that. He says, in verse 2, it says that Joseph brought his father a bad report. You see that? A bad report about his brothers. This word bad report is a Hebrew word that always means false report. It's a lie. It's, it's a misrepresentation of some kind. So already the narrator, and I remember if you're reading this in Hebrew, you pick up on this. The narrator wants you to see that here, here you have this 17-year-old kid who's become a manipulator. And he's already playing this game where he's, he's casting his brothers as the bad guys so he can be the good guy with dad. And so that he can keep his position of favor in his place as dad's favorite. Nobody else gets the attention. Eyes right here, dad. Keep your eyes on me, right? Some of you are like, man, this fam- family sounds really familiar. Uh, sibling rivalries. Like, this is, this is here in the text for us to deal with. As you keep going, you see uh, more brokenness with Joseph because you see what he does with these dreams. Uh, look at verse 5. It says, verse 5, uh, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
And his brothers said to him, are we, are, are you really saying you're going to rule over us? And it says they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. The things you say matter. Like they have a significant impact on other people. It's for the record. So let's just be, you know, point this out that Joseph can't help having this dream, right? He had the dream. God actually gave him the dream. But I hope that we, you know, we would all have enough self-awareness uh, to not brag about this to your older brothers if this were you. Um, like, hey, losers, I had a dream that all you guys are going to bow down to me one day, right? Like in any culture, that's going to get you at least a noogie or a wedgie or a swirly or like a punch in the arm or something, and especially in a patriarchal culture. Like you just don't, this is, you don't do this. Common sense says you don't do this. And yet, look, look what happens. He does it again. So verse 9, he hasn't learned his lesson. Verse 9 says, he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers again. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, it's convenient that he has 11 brothers, were bowing down to me. And again, his brothers get really upset. And this time Jacob, his father, gets really upset. What are you doing, he says. So he has another dream. He goes right back and tells his brothers again. You know what that shows me? You know what the narrator wants you to see? Joseph doesn't lack self-awareness. He just doesn't care how he makes other people feel. Here's what Tim Keller says about it. Um, Keller says this about Joseph's behavior. He says, Joseph's behavior toward his brothers reflects that Joseph is on his way to becoming a sociopath. The text reveals that he is pathologically insensitive to the emotional impact of his words and behavior on other people. Joseph has become a spoiled, selfish, insensitive, arrogant, shallow, and perhaps even cruel person. So what the narrator wants us to see is that Jacob's unresolved issues ended up poisoning the whole family system. For Joseph, it creates this wounds of narcissism and elitism and comparison and this this false narrative of as long as people see me as the best, they will love me. So I will crush you in order to be the best. Well, I'll do whatever it takes in order to be seen in the most positive light because that's how I gain affirmation. That's what I've learned from my childhood if I'm Joseph. And then his, for his brothers, they're, they're just full of loneliness, right? And hurt and shame. And now they're forced to live out this abandonment narrative of why doesn't my dad see me? Why can't he love me? Why doesn't he want me? What's wrong with me? And as you keep reading, unfortunately, things get worse before they get better. It gets worse before it gets better. If you want to sum up the rest of chapter 37, Joseph's brothers get together. They develop a plan to kill him. And so one day they seize him and they beat him. Verse 23 says they strip him of this robe. That is a, not a throwaway detail. That robe was a token and a symbol of their father's affection and love for him. And they wanted to strip their brother of, their father, of, of the father's love the way he had stripped it from them. And so they strip him naked of this robe. They hated that robe. And they throw Joseph into this pit and they leave him for dead. Until some slave traders come strolling by. Slave traders come walking by and they see an opportunity to make money off of Joseph, so they sell him for 20 pieces of silver into slavery. And then they take the coat all bloodied and torn, they take it to their dad and they say, your favorite golden child has been slaughtered by an animal. And they lie to him and they manipulate him. Things get worse for Joseph because as a slave in Egypt, he's falsely accused of rape and then he spends 13 years languishing in prison knowing that he wouldn't even be there in this situation had his brothers not betrayed him. So 
I, I just want to stop right here for a moment, and I just want to ask an obvious question. What do we see in this story? What, what do we learn? What does God want us to learn from this about human beings and how we function? I think I want to point out at least two things. Can I put them on the screen for you? The first thing I think we see and learn from this, and if you, you, if you want to understand your own life and your own story, you have to embrace this. You have to embrace the reality that at the core of your being is this truth. You were designed for relationship. Like fundamentally, we are relational souls who long to be loved because we're created in the image of a relational God who is love. And, and because we are relational souls... You and I are born with this relentless longing for deep connection. Another word for that would be attachment with God and with others, because that's how you get the deepest needs of your soul met. Um, Every human soul is driven by three fundamental needs. The need to be known, the need to belong, and the need to be loved. And that's what drives you. Like, if, if you want to understand your life and you want to understand your story, you want to understand why you are the way you are and you do the things you do, you have to understand that this is what is driving you. Uh, Jeff Schulte, many of you know, you've heard him preach here a couple times. Jeff Schulte says it like this, quote, When trying to understand someone's behavior, you need to know that attachment trumps everything. At some level... Everything we're doing or will do is trying to find connection or relationship. Trying to find a place where we can be known, belong, and be loved. And we're going to find it somewhere, even if we have to simulate it. This is what's driving you. This is what's driving Joseph's brothers. This is what's driving Joseph. Kurt Thompson, who's a neurobiologist and a follower of Jesus, he says it like this. As scripture shows, this is biblical, y'all. As scripture shows, attachment has been needed into the most primitive fibers of our being. Even in moments of despair and darkness, check this out, even when our behavior is repulsive and hurtful, we are desperately trying to regain our course and act on the inescapable longing for the attachment that was lost in Eden. You want to know why people do the thing they do? There's a a thing in them that's longing for connection. And you see that in Joseph's brothers, right? Even their sinful acting out is driven by longing for their father's approval and affirmation. Listen, I've got a robust theology of sin. I'm not justifying their actions at all. I'm simply saying there's a context for their sin. How they're going about it is destructive, but what they're reacting to is this deep desire for secure attachment, for affirmation, to be known, to be loved, to belong. And the truth about us as human beings is we will attach to any person or any strategy or any structure that we believe will give that to us. Money, work, success, body image, marriage, kids, pornography, alcohol, drugs, you name it. Like Schulte said, the soul's going to find it even if it has to simulate it. And so the point is this. I think one thing we learned from this is that this longing for secure, loving relationship drives everything we do. I, I will say with integrity, it's all you've ever wanted. Now, the second thing we learn in this story 
and that is crucial in order for us to understand our own stories, is that not only are we shaped for relationships, we are shaped by relationships. In other words, how we attach and relate to others is directly shaped and influenced by how other people have attached to and related to us. And this starts very early in life. I'll give you a lengthy quote from Rich Plass, who says it like this. Learning to relate starts as early as the day we are born and probably in the womb. Our way of entering into and maintaining all our relationships is one of the earliest psychological structures formed in us. We come into the world neurologically wired to make connections, to attach to others. Get this. When our early connections are healthy, we will find it easy to connect well as adults. But to the extent that our emotional attachment with our primary caregivers is lacking while we are children... We will find our relational capacity limited as adults. It is virtually impossible to overstate the significance of our learned relational attachment system in the early years and its profound influence on our relational experience as adults. Listen to this. The quality and character of the programming we received early in life establishes a pattern of attachment that controls our relationships later in life. What Rich is getting at is the fact that God created you with a permeable soul. Your brain, your, your body, your soul is designed like a sponge to absorb the emotional presence of others and, and to take shape around the emotional presence of others and the experiences that you've had growing up in a fallen world. And as much as we would like to think that, especially in, in America, that we're purely self-made people, you're not. I'm not. You are not just a product of your own choices. You are also a product of your relationships. And again, that matters because the nurturing you've received, depending on how healthy or unhealthy it was, literally shapes and programs your neural networks. The, 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 the way your brain is forged and mapped and shaped to do intimacy and relationship, which affects not just how you do that with others, but how you do that with Jesus. And I would assume that most of us had good parents who, just like we are, we're just trying to do the best we can. Golly, we have no idea what we're doing. None of us do. I sure don't. Um, but the reality is, as I said earlier, no matter how good or godly your family of origin it was or your childhood experience was, the reality is, on every level, all families are dysfunctional and nobody gets out of childhood unscathed. Uh, we, we all carry some emotional wounds that are shaping us, and, and we're building stories to try to make sense of them. Whether it's an emotionally detached parent, um, an over-controlling parent, an absent parent, a loss, a divorce, uh, some form of emotional, physical, sexual abuse, words that were spoken to you on a playground, um, words that, you ne- that were never spoken to you, that you never heard, like, I see you, and I love you, and you're mine, and you belong to me. Listen, not all wounds are active, as in something that was done to you, but often wounds are passive, as in something that was not done for you. This was the case with Joseph's brothers, right? And, and it creates a vacuum in our souls. And, and I just want to say, like, you're not stroking your kid's approval idol or something. You cannot look your children in the eyes enough dads especially, and grab them and hold them and tell them like how loved they are. You're not telling them they're perfect. They're little sinful little midget demons sometimes, right? (laughs) But you're telling them that in spite of all of that, I love you like Jesus. 
in, in spite of all your imperfections, I love you. And listen, there's something about us that needs to hear that. Jesus sure needed to hear it. He needed to hear from his father, that's my boy. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Like, and Jesus is the template for what it means to be human, right? Humans need that. And I, I sit down with a lot, of, a lot of you and a lot of guys who say things like, well, my, my parents never told me that, but they showed it to me. How'd they show it to you? Well, food on my back and a roof over my head and, and, and you know, food on my back. Clothes on my back. <laughs> food in my... That would be... That, I'd like to see that, actually. Uh, food in my belly. And, 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 and like, the reality is you, you've, you've just described a Russian orphanage, right? You can, you can read all about these, these Russian orphans who have all those things, all those physical needs met, and that they're literally dying because they're not getting what they need emotionally, which is to know that they belong and they matter. They, they're, they're, they're known, they're loved, and they belong, right? You need that. Joseph's brothers needed that. That's why they reacted the way they did. I'm not justifying their actions, but they're acting out of a deep longing for something they don't have. Jesus wants to give that to them. We're going to get there in just a moment. Let me just say this as a word of encouragement, um, because if you're like me and you're a parent in the room, you're thinking at this point, oh my gosh, who's going to pay for my child's therapy? Because I have seriously done some damage. And I just want to say this. I was in San Diego a couple of years ago, and I got to hear Jeff Vanderstelt's wife, Janie, speak. And, and here's something she said. She said, quote, part of raising your children well is bracing yourself for the moment when they are grown and tell their story in all the ways that you have hurt them. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, part of raising your children well is bracing yourself for this moment. And then she went on to say, like, we don't get any redos as parents. But we don't get redos. We don't, we don't need redos. We need redemption. And here's the good news. On your best days and your worst days, you have the opportunity to point your children to the Redeemer. When, you're, when you kill it, knock it out of the park, and love them like crazy, you point them to the Redeemer. When you like stink it up and you blow it big time and you go back to them and apologize, you get a chance to point them to the Redeemer. Like, man, is it God's, the economy of God's grace is he's so good and so powerful that he takes your best moments and your most broken moments and he still uses them to create places where he will do deep work in your children and in you. And nothing is wasted in the economy of his grace. So man, like, please don't walk out of here at all like anxious and freaked out about all the damage you're doing. If you walk in the power of the gospel and be quick to repent, you can't mess this up. Because the Father is that, he's just, he's just that good. And the good news also is this. Your wounds and your interpretations can inform you. They do not have to define you. And by God's grace, you can change. Uh, he's given you his spirit if you're in Christ. He's given you his gospel. He's given you the community of faith. You can partner with God in this adventure of rewriting your story. And that's what we see happen in Joseph's life. Uh, if you're picking back up the story, just despite all the brokenness we see in Joseph's family, this story actually has a joyful, redemptive ending. After 13 years in prison, Joseph's now 30 years old. He interprets this dream for Pharaoh, and all this stuff happens. And through the series of events, Pharaoh ends up promoting Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt, which means now Joseph is the second most powerful person on the planet. And you might think that someone with his story would use that kind of power to crush and hurt people. But actually, Joseph stewards his power and his position to save the world. And he's this really compassionate world leader. 
And in chapter 42, his brothers hear that there's this great leader in Egypt that's saving the world because he's got food. And so Jacob looks at his sons and says, go see this guy. Has no idea that it's Joseph. Like, go see this guy. And, 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 and so the brothers go to Egypt and they, they end up reuniting with Joseph. They can't believe he's alive. They go back home and they tell their father, Jacob, you're not going to believe this. Joseph's alive. And then the whole family moves to Egypt. And there's this powerful scene of reunion where they're literally laying on each other, the text says. They throw themselves on top of each other and they're hugging and they're, they're, they're weeping and they're kissing one another and they're rejoicing. And, and so the story ends on this powerful note of love and grace and restoration. The question is that the narrator wants us to ask is how does Joseph go from being a 17-year-old spoiled narcissist to a 30-year-old compassionate world leader whose life is marked by love and deep relationship? How did Joseph change his script? And, and we obviously don't have time to read it, but in brief... There's three things you see from chapters 41 to 50. Three things that you see that we can take and apply from Joseph's life. I'm going to try to run through this fairly quickly because I realize I'm going long. I've got enough self-awareness to know that. Uh, here's the first one you see. First thing you see in Joseph's, Joseph's story, Joseph was emotionally honest about his story. He did not fixate on his wounds, but he also did not deny or minimize or ignore them either. Six times we are told in this narrative that Joseph wept over his broken relationship with his dad and his brothers. Six times we're told he wept. In fact, in, in chapter 45, we're told he wept so loudly that the Egyptians thought he was dying. They thought something was wrong with him. Joseph had the courage to face his emotional reality. He didn't minimize or rationalize his childhood or his painful memories. He told the truth about his life and he grieved appropriately. And the point is this, in order for you to reinterpret your story, you have to first be willing to tell the truth about your life. And I can tell you that if you do that, you're not going to be dishonoring your parents if you're telling the truth. And if you're telling the truth, I can promise you Jesus will meet you there. You have to face your emotional reality. Most of us, myself included, are very resistant about going back and feeling the hurt and the pain of our past. And so we deny it or we minimize it. We say things like, the past is the past. Look on the bright side. But the reality is, just because you deny your emotional pain doesn't mean it goes away. It might go to sleep. But it's going to wake up one day and hijack your life. That's why people blow their lives up. It doesn't go to sleep. It gets worse. And we understand this with a physical wound. If you're walking around with a gaping gunshot wound on your arm, I'm going to be like, hey, bro, get that treated. <laughs> like if you don't get that treated, it's going to get infected and it's going to affect the way you do your whole life. And I don't know what it is about me that I just want to pretend that that, that same logic doesn't apply with emotional wounds. That somehow they're just going to go away when I grow up. Jesus might touch and heal an emotional wound just like that. When he does, it's called a miracle. The normal created order of things is just like a physical wound. It takes time. It takes attention. You've got you've to look at it and pay attention to it and tell the truth about it. And if you try to push it down, it's like trying to push down a beach ball. It's going to keep popping up and it's going to come out sideways in all your relationships. Here's a fundamental truth about us. Universal principle that you see in this passage. You see it with Joseph's brothers. Hurt people hurt people. And any pain that you don't redeem, you will reproduce. It's generational sin. It's in the Bible. It's all throughout the Genesis narrative. 
And so for you to break this cycle, you've got to go back and face your past and you've got to tell the truth about it. What happened? How did you feel about it? And, and please hear me. Listen, not so that you can blame other people for all your problems, but so that you can take responsibility for your own healing and growth. And that's the second thing you see in Joseph's story. Here's how you rewrite your script. Uh, Joseph took responsibility for himself and he forgave those who hurt him. Listen, Joseph was a victim of violence, was he not? He, he did not downplay that, but he also did not let himself be defined by that. In the end, um, he, he did not give himself to bitterness and rage and blame his family for all his problems, but he took responsibility for himself and for his own growth by forgiving and extending grace to those who hurt him. And, and please hear me say this, man. I'm not saying that you just got to get over it and forgive and forget. Um, forgiveness is a command, but it takes hard work and practice. Uh, that's why Peter comes to Jesus like, how many times do I have to forgive somebody before I can stop trying? And Jesus says, well, you never stop, right? It's an it's a intentional pursuit. And the deeper the wound, the longer the process it usually is. And even Joseph didn't get there overnight. By the way, in chapter 42, Joseph uses his power to torture his brothers a little bit when they first get there. He didn't get there overnight, okay? But he let his compassion grow. And by the end of this, he's focused on how much grace he's been shown by, by God. And so he turns in favor and shows grace to his brothers. And, and if you want a good definition of forgiveness, I'll put this on the screen. Forgiveness is trusting God enough with your hurt that you give up the right to make the other person pay. And therefore, you cancel the debt of whatever their sin took from you. What did their sin take from you? Innocence? What did it take from you? Forgiveness is trusting God with your hurt and giving up the right to make the other person pay. And it doesn't just set them free, it sets you free. This is what Joseph did. He, he came to terms with how much he had been forgiven and he extended grace. Finally, the last thing we see in Joseph's life is that Joseph came to see his entire story as being held within God's story. Joseph reinterpreted his whole story, even the darkest moments and the most traumatic events, through the lens of God's loving and active presence in his life. This allows Joseph to say at the very end of the book, favorite, my favorite verse in this book, with integrity and conviction, he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you, you think about everything Joseph had gone through, and yet in the end, the story he chooses to tell himself is not God hates me and God's abandoned me or whatever, but the story he tells himself is, even in my darkest moments, God was always with me, and he was always holding my story. Joseph is literally living out Psalm 27.10. Psalm 2710 says this. I don't know if we have it. Yeah. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. That's in the Bible because we need to see it. Because parents hurt their kids for better, for on purpose or on accident, whatever. Kids feel this way sometimes. And that's in the Bible because we need to know that even in our darkest moments, the Lord is present with us. And that's, Joseph just believes that. It's the story he's telling himself and it's true. 
God is so good and so powerful, he will use even the evil and the trauma that I've lived to bring about good in my life and enable me to be a blessing to others. And so Joseph was aware of his past. He was aware of how it shaped him, but he did not let himself stay there. He reinterpreted his story in light of God's story of redemption and love and grace. And we want to help you do that as pastors. Um, to do that, we're going to do a practice this week. It's something called a life map. You can access this on your app. It's also chapter 9 of your DNA workbook. If you want to go ahead and skip ahead and do it, chapter 9. The basic idea of a life map is this. Our story is composed of three, of three things, three, three components. The events that happen, the emotions you felt in light of those events, and the interpretations you made to help you make sense of it all. And so the practice is this. We want to invite you to get alone with God and get alone with yourself. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember your life. And go back as far as you can in your, in your memory and you record the five to ten most painful memories across the span of your childhood up until now. And then with each memory, you just want to do three things. Here it is on the screen. Events. You want to write down what happened, where it happened, how old you were, who was involved. Uh, write down the emotion you felt. Were you sad, angry, lonely, hurt, shame, guilt, fear? What, what did you feel? And then as best as you can, you want to write down the interpretation you made, the story you told yourself about who you are in light of what happened. Step number four is you want to share this with an empathetic listener. I, I could give you tons of quotes scientifically on the, the, what that does to the brain when you talk through this with someone who's trusting and listening present. So you want to share this with your DNA group. And then the most important step, step five, invite Jesus into these memories Invite Jesus into your story, into these places, and ask him to speak what is true, and then listen. Ask him to unburden you of these false beliefs. Jesus wants you to let his interpretation of you reinterpret your interpretation of you. And he will do that through the power of his presence and his gospel if you will invite him into these places. And this is ultimately where Joseph's story is pointing us, is to look at Jesus (laughs) Joseph's life is an obvious foreshadow of the one who would come and rescue us from sin, heal our wounds, and make all things new. Because centuries later, after Joseph, Jesus would enter into our world. And like Joseph, he was rejected by his own people. Like Joseph, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Like Joseph, he was falsely accused and arrested. Like Joseph, he was beaten and stripped of his robe, even stripped of his father's love for a moment in history on the cross. And he was crucified and his body was thrown into a pit. Here's the good news. We crucified Jesus and intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. And on the cross, God turned evil against itself and used it to accomplish the greatest good, which is the salvation of the world and the healing of all that is broken.